Hi guys, I'm here with Funke Abubola, who is a senior leader and lawyer for the pharmaceutical business of the world's largest biotech, Roche Pharmaceuticals. And outside of her day job, she spends a significant amount of her time uh, campaigning for more diversity within the legal profession and for the wider business community as a whole. She has been recognised as one of the top ethnic minority leaders, which was presented by the Financial Times. And recently, Funke was awarded the MBE by Her Royal Highness, Queen Elizabeth II, for services to diversity in the legal profession and to young people itself. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. Not at all. And can you just tell us a little bit about what goes into um, the choices for MBE and how the ceremony went itself? Um, well, the nomination, you're not aware of um, who's put you forward. Oh, I um, so I only found out after my name uh, was actually announced on the list. That's when all these <laughs> friends, colleagues, you know, mentees came forward and said that they'd sent off um, nomination packs and letters of support oh. uh, to the cabinet office. So it was it was a real surprise. Um it's it's amazing. I mean, the ceremony itself, the investor ceremony, is like nothing I've ever experienced. You know, it was um, a Buckingham Palace. Prince Charles um, gave me my medal, which was amazing. He he knew a lot about me and what I'd done. You know, I spoke to him for about a minute or so, um, and uh, it was just very inspiring. The whole thing, you know, it's it's opened so many doors as well to drive more change, which is uh, incredible, uh, really. I never appreciated how uh, an honour like this would make such a difference. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were nominated by by colleagues um, who I can imagine have seen the huge amount of diversity, or um, work you've done in promoting diversity in the legal sector or just in the business community as a whole. Um, yeah. And that's not one thing I can personally attest to is that's not something you, it appears you do on the side. That seems to be something you do through and through. Um, mm. I wanted to find out what sort of inspired you to take such a headstrong, active role in promoting diversity. Um, a lot of it came from initially from my own personal experiences. You know, I had um, I had challenges entering the legal profession, despite uh, ticking all the boxes that I thought you needed to tick. You know, in terms of uh, coming from a privileged Nigerian background, I'd been privately educated. I'd been to our Russell Group uh, University to read law. You know, had good grades. I didn't really think there'd be any barrier, but it became very clear that when I was applying, uh, there was um, there was bias because my name is obviously not a British name. And mm -hmm. I com uh, compared myself to um, um, some of my peers who had more English-looking uh, names, and they were progressing at least to getting interviews and so on, where I wasn't. Yeah. So I had to work really hard to get my foot in the door and it made me very angry um, because that's not the way it should be at all. You know, it really should boil down to talent and it shouldn't matter what your um, your background is ethnically. Um, I then had a similar hurdle when I had my son and returned to work after maternity leave. Mm -hmm. um, I experienced all the challenges that women experience when they are returning uh, and women returners, and it's now a well-known <laughs> expression, but, you know, my son's 15 now, so we're going back quite some time. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really tough. And again, I found myself getting very angry, had to change firms because the firm I was working for just couldn't accommodate 
the fact that I had a baby and, you know, just different working patterns, it just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I do remember is just, again, feeling very angry and, and wanting to do something about it to actually drive that change to level the playing field. Sure. So what was, um, I think that's actually quite a good, a good learning point that you said you didn't feel like you were getting perhaps the right support or um, opportunities where you were. So you, you, you went to a place that would give you that, that opportunity. Can I ask, did you find the move itself challenging and um, you saying that you found your own experiences being the driver of it? What was the first step you took in wanting to promote diversity? sort of two questions at once yeah sure so the move itself wasn't that difficult it was the right move um best move for me uh, and my son you know it meant leaving london and to move to hertfordshire where we still live now and this was over 10 years ago now and it was the best move all round. i i got a job with a regional uh law firm and i had a really really understanding boss um, and was promoted and did very well at that firm so that was definitely move um the steps i started taking to promote diversity i started mentoring people um probably about 10 years ago some people seem to remember me mentoring them 15 years ago uh, even though i wasn't aware that <laughs> that's what i was doing necessarily informal mentoring <laughs> certainly as of 10 years ago i consciously <laughs> yes um I, I consciously started uh, mentoring those who i could see were going to face similar challenges um and offering them tips and advice and, you know, trying to tap into my network, see what I could do to help them, um, really. And it, it just sort of grew from there. I mean, it, a major, major turning point was when I got my initial role uh, with my organization, Roche, um, uh, six years ago now almost, um, the first role I had with them, because it was a very, very uh, high-profile appointment and really shone the spotlight on me as a as a black lawyer, mm-hmm. um, being in the industry and you know being becoming the most senior black lawyer in my field, etc. So I suddenly get, started getting inundated with interview requests. You know, how did you do it? What happened, and so on. And I realised I could use that visibility as a real platform uh, to drive change. I started volunteering for the law society um, a lot more, and other organisations since then. So. I hold a number of board positions. I've been to number 10 to meet the Prime Minister. I, mm-hmm. I volunteer my time with the Ministry of Justice. I've met the Secretary of State for Justice a few times, all around diversity, uh, either race, uh, gender, or, or social mobility. Those are the three areas that I tend to focus on. Yeah. And would you say that because you'd reached that senior position that helped you be able to help other people a lot more because one, not only can you show them that it's possible, um, but even just the influence that as you are a senior black lawyer in, in the firm can have your voice almost has a bit more waiting. It does because you're so, um, you're so visible and so conspicuous. People do notice everything you say and do. And I realized there were huge advantages uh, to that. Uh, And being senior, of course, gives you, more credibility as well you know you've had a lot of experience and you're a lot more confident within yourself uh, and better able to articulate what you actually stand for also so um it's had a real snowball effect i I must say and i can only see that uh you know even becoming even more in the future um really because of the way that i'm trying to 
uh, get involved in doing more things for even wider impact. Yeah. And also, um, recently I noticed that you, you wrote an article on LinkedIn about um, some of the challenges or um, difficulties that come with being so visible. Um, mm-hmm. Would you mind just speaking briefly about, about that? Yes, I mean, people are very, very critical of of anyone who's very visible, um, more so if you're a woman and also if you're a woman of colour. It's almost as if society doesn't expect you to be doing what you're doing. You know, having a, a strong, confident, articulate black woman who, you know, is able to drive change and shape people's minds actually causes quite a lot of fear for some, certainly those yeah. who are Uh, invested in the current status quo and everything I do is about changing the status quo you know in some way it's all about not settling for the way things are but what I've found is that those who um, are in some way benefiting from the status quo or just fearful or jealous or resentful uh, in some instances are just ignorant of why you're doing it yeah Um, I've had a lot of judgments made about me by uh, a relatively small minority Mm-hmm. Um, as indeed have other friends of mine who are also very visible campaigners um, as well. And um, that c- it can become very personal. You know, uh, I've had situations where I've wondered, you know, is it really worth <laughs> worth this because yeah. of the backlash you sometimes get? But ultimately, knowing why you're doing it is what keeps you going. Um, you know, I know exactly why I'm doing this on so many levels, and I'm not going to allow... Uh, what is a minority voice really to stop me from doing it? Yeah. And it's such a shame that what you're, of course, what you're trying to promote is positivity and that um, because there's no, I can see no downside to there being more diversity in the workplace. And I think mm-hmm. we've, we've all seen the studies on, on how diversity can have so many ben- benefits to a business. Um, and it's such a shame that that seems to sometimes be an uphill battle when, um, you know, you'd hope that in this time that people are more accepting of that. Yes, it's a pity, but it tends to be when people feel threatened in some way. I mean, I am very collaborative in the way I go about doing this. You know, I on the gender work, for example, I, I collaborate, collaborate with a lot of uh, male leaders who, you know, without their help, it would be impossible to actually change the whole gender uh, equality piece. And certainly in law firms, they tend to be white, you know, guys uh, in their 50s who are running firms uh, in the main. So, you know, my my approach has been to really collaborate with them. And that's been very successful. You know, even I've been quite surprised by how receptive they've been. But a lot of them have admitted to me how fearful they were initially about what I was trying to achieve because they thought that one partner said that he felt that he could become an endangered species. (laughs) Uh, literally, those are his words. <laughs> interesting way to look at it. Um, so, you know, you, there's a delicate art, I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. But there's a delicate art to the messaging, and actually it's a slightly different messaging, depending on who you're talking to, to, to win them over. It's it's whatever will actually speak to their specific situation. Yeah. Uh, so I tailor my messaging accordingly, and it's it's been very, very successful. Yeah. And I, yeah, I completely agree that it, 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 takes working with the people in in the in the positions regardless of their background to kind of really actually drive this diversity forward it doesn't need to just be something that's kept within a specific community because sometimes it can feel like you're just speaking to people who already agree with the idea that there needs to be exactly. a diversity exactly yeah um so you mentioned that you you're part of a number of societies the law society being 
being one of them. Um, I have to ask, how do you plan your your average week, and how do you fit <laughs> all of this around around it all? It's a real challenge um, because all of this is outside my day job, which is unrelated to this. Uh, my day job is actually being the senior lawyer for my organisation. You know, senior leader. Um, advising on both legal compliance and also, you know, strategy and the vision for the company itself, um, leading a number of teams, et cetera. So that's a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do work on a full-time basis uh, for Roche. Um, so this is being done, um, you know, in the evenings after work. It's uh, occasionally on weekends, but I avoid doing weekends as much as I can so I can have quality time with my son. Uh, I use my annual leave, some of my annual leave for this activity as well, because, of course, some of it does happen during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means saying no to a lot of things. So I've had to really, really prioritize and only get involved in the things that really align with my vision. I've had to focus just on the legal profession. I've had many requests for, for other industries, <laughs> you know, construction, media, yeah. uh, you know, banking, so on. I just cannot spare the time. Uh, and frankly, my, my motivation is the legal profession itself, uh, really. Uh, it's not. Uh, other industries are then, of course, caught up in that because a number of lawyers do work within industry itself. Um, but my focus is the legal profession. And I find that if if the request doesn't align with that vision, I say no. Um, it's hard, but, you know, it means that I do focus on the things that are going to actually have the most impact. Yeah, I was going to say... It can be about the quality of the the help that you can offer as opposed to the quantity. <laughs> and also I have a, n- a number of people I mentor who I then rec- I recommend them, you know, so I, I get far too many speaker invites now for things and I will regularly have to decline, but I'll suggest maybe four or five other people who, who could speak instead so they can raise their profiles um, and then do the same for others. So it has a ripple effect really. So that's how I manage the time. And I don't actually feel, I used to feel, feel quite guilty saying no. Yeah. Um, but actually this year I've realized that I'm already doing an overwhelming amount and, and there's no guilt. You know, people of course will ask, I mean, why wouldn't they ask me? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I have to just, you know, I now don't feel guilty at all when I say no. Yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic to, to hear that you, I, I, I understand the idea of needing to focus um, even mm. in anything that you do, because then just the sheer quality of what you can offer um, will hopefully increase. And also offering other people that can perhaps take a step in your place if you are unable to do it so that the, the other people that are reaching out can still maybe get some suggestions or some some potential options. Yes, exactly. Okay. And I also noticed that you recently... You, you do a lot of things, but one of the things that you recently started doing was the um, BBC World News Reviews. Um, I just wanted to find out how you got involved with this and what the experience has been so far. Yes, so that came about by chance. I was interviewed by Sally Bundock, who's one of the uh, main uh, news reviewers, for uh, a, an interview for the legal profession, actually. It was the International Bar Association, and she was the independent journalist that they got in. Uh, to interview me live. It was a webcast that was being broad- broadcast live uh, internationally. And we'd only met each other 20 minutes before we were live. You know, it was one of those. Yeah. We had about 80,000 people watching and, oh. um, 
live. You know, I didn't have any questions beforehand or anything like that. Uh, and it worked really, really well. We got on very well. When we finished, she gave me her card, said, I'd love to get you on. Uh, it was a year-long commitment, which I've now finished uh, with the BBC. Okay. Um, because they like to um, have different, you know, different people after a year, not just the same. Sure. But for a solid year, I was on BBC One uh, once a month, uh, reading, you know, doing the World News Review with normally with Sally Bundock and one other uh, journalist uh, with very little preparation. You know, a lot of people seem to feel that I got the stories the night before, but actually, no, I would find out that morning um, which stories we're looking at. Yeah, I remember. Really, I remember asking you yeah. about how do you even keep on um, up to date with everything that's going on in the news um, and you telling me that, yeah, you'd only found out about it often the morning before and you just have to kind of start sharing your viewpoint kind of almost on the spot yes and the irony is I don't actually watch the news I mean this is the joke when I saw, <laughs> you know my well everyone who is close to me when they found out I was going to be doing this thing thought it was hilarious because I make a point you know it's well known within my family my friends I don't I consciously do not watch the news um because I find it you know quite depressing I don't like the media bias and all the rest of it so yeah. um it's just ironic that I would then be on there, you know, giving my opinion uh, at very, very short notice on stories that I might not even have been familiar with until 10 minutes before. But it was great fun. I mean, it was I learned a lot from it. Yeah. Um, it's led to other work with the BBC. I do lots of radio um, stuff for them now. Uh, it was quite tough during the early mornings, I have to say. I mean, I was on air at 5.45. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and having to wake up at 3.30 in the morning to get the cab at 4am. And, you know, yeah. so <laughs> it was really difficult doing doing it so early. But wonderful experience. Uh, and there are other things that it's led to since. So it's been fantastic. Yeah, well, congrats again. Um, Thank you. No, not a problem. Now I just wanted to move on to find out a bit about the work that you do. Um, because, as I said, I wanted to share the stories of of um, women of colour in senior positions and um, I think it'd be great to find out what you what your average week will involve um, and also any self-care tips that you help that allow yeah. you to help manage your week and make sure that you're sure. able to continue to be charged. Sure so my 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 job is as, as the solicitor I mean that's what brought me into the company I, I work for but uh, I'm now general counsel and uh, head of financial compliance there so I, I spend uh, about 30% of my time on legal advisory mm -hmm. and the rest of the time is on st strategy related compliance, uh, financial uh, related matters as well. And it could be anything from one minute, you know, it, it could literally be drafting an, an agreement um, to enable access uh, for, you know, some of our products uh, for patients to be treated with our products uh, to actually negotiating to, uh, looking at uh, a new launch of a product and how we're going to go about doing that in a compliant manner. Uh, that's taking up a lot of my time at the moment, actually. Um, and just generally supporting the vision and the strategy. So, you know, our, our aim as an organisation is to uh, give access to, to patients who need our products, you know, to give as much access uh, to those patients as possible. Yeah. I get involved in a lot of the negotiations with the uh, healthcare uh, system at various levels, Department of Health, Secretary of State, um, NHS England and all the different organisations uh, within the NHS because the NHS is our biggest customer. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a huge part of my role, of course, is managing my team, you know, um, developing them, motivating them, making sure that they are, you know, empowered to do their roles um, properly, um, keeping that key uh, team spirit, um, you know, and um, making sure there's a good vibe in the team as well, which is something I take a real, real pleasure in doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentor a lot, even within my day job, um, as well as externally. But even within my day job, I have a number of mentees, um, both locally um, in, within Roche and also globally. Some of my mentees in our other Roche uh, countries now. Um, but so no two days are, are ever the same. You know, we it's a very, very di- diverse role. Um, my role is very much as a trusted advisor, um, you know, on, on all matters, really, um, regarding legal compliance and, and financial uh, compliance. Um, self-care wise, I do maintain boundaries. I'm very, very careful to, you know, doing things like I aim to go out for a power walk with a member of my team, my, my number two, my deputy. Mm-hmm. We try to do it two, three times a week. We just walk around very, very fast, you know, two miles um, in about half an hour. And we find it really, really helps us um, when we come back into the office and we've been outside. And we've done it in all weathers, you know, rain, when it's been really snow. bad weather. Just out. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes in snow we did do. Yeah. Um, but it's just so good. And we, we talk and, you know, we really thrash out issues and things like that, bounce ideas off each other. It's a very, very productive time. Um, I'm very careful not to stay in the office long hours either. I find that, I mean, we don't have a presenteeism culture at our organization. So people don't stay in the office for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. But I do tend to leave the office by about 5, 5.30. I'll come home, check on my son, um, you know, and then I might do a bit of work. Um, I, I do work early in the morning if I feel I need to catch up before I go into the office. So sometimes I'll wake up early and um, do a, a couple of hours before going in. And those two hours could be the equivalent of two days in the office because there's no interruptions. You know, I can really, really focus and get a lot done when I'm not being interrupted. Sure. Um, and I think very, very clearly at that time in the morning when I'm on my own, you know, it's, no it's just the way it's worked for me. No distractions. Uh, when I'm distracted, I'm not productive at all. Of course. Um, now, um, now, obviously, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of the same. I think in the morning, you, you know, you're not going to have um, the messages coming in because people rarely let, <laughs> send messages at five o'clock in the morning. Um, so it is a nice time to focus. I get a lot done. And, and weekends, I'm very careful not to do, uh, rarely do I do any work on weekends. Um, I only do maybe four diversity-related engagements on weekends a year. You know, I really, I turn down absolutely everything. Sure. Those four are for good friends that I like to support with the various things they do, and they do the same thing every year. It's the same event every year. Um, and when I'm on holiday, I don't check my email, but I'm contactable by phone. So it's only real emergencies that come through. The problem is when you're a lawyer, yeah. There's no way to review emails without, you know, there's often attachments, documents that need marking up, reviewing, commenting on, and so on. So there is no halfway house where you sort of check your email, but you don't do the work. Yeah. It's, it's impossible. So I find that what's worked for me is that I'm contactable by phone. 
Um, and it's been I've been quite happy being contacted on holiday um, in the past, but it's been for genuine emergencies. Um, and that way, my team are then very really empowered to manage when I'm not there, which, of course, is the whole point. I don't want to become so indispensable that, you know, they can't cope without me. I need to be around all the time. That's not the sort of model that I want for a team leadership at all. Of course. Um, so all of those things really help. And I encourage that with all my team as well, that they shouldn't be checking their emails when they're on leave. Um, but they, they should be contactable by text or, you know, WhatsApp if there's a genuine emergency. And I'm yeah. glad to say that we've not had any real uh, occasion for that. It's very, very rare that that's the case. Yeah. So kind of when when you're out of the office, you can kind of focus more on your personal life, I guess. That's very important. Yeah. It's, it's really important because, of course, you're not, you know, well-being is essential in all of this and it doesn't serve anyone uh, if you can't switch off. You know, I've seen many people burn out throughout my career and, um, you know, it's something to be so, so wary of. There's nothing is worth um, your health and well-being. Of course. And did you always want to be a lawyer? I did. And it was a big issue within my family because... Um, I come from a medical family, mm -hmm. you know, everybody was a doctor, both parents and, you know, aunts, uncles and so on. I'm the eldest child. My dad was educating me here at a tremendous expense in the UK. I'm originally from Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, he was paying a fortune <laughs> to <laughs> educate me. So he fully expected me to do medicine. I didn't want to do medicine. Um, he was very supportive, though, once I actually convinced him why I wanted to do law. But... Yes, I've always wanted to be a lawyer from as, as far back as I can remember. You know, I, I'm, I was fascinated by the legal system and how that shaped society um, and how important the rule of law was, actually, was something that I was aware of from a very, very young age. Um, and I, I really, more than anything, wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. And how did you go about convincing your, your dad that the you wouldn't be taking the sort of traditional route, as you said, with coming from such a medical background <laughs> i had to um i had to get my teachers involved um in the convincing because <laughs> i was <laughs> i was 16 yeah i really did i mean he he thought it might it could possibly be a whim uh, and he was very worried that i could influence my younger siblings not to do medicine i mean they've all gone on to do medicine by the way none of them <laughs> None of them deviated from the plan, as it were. Um, but they, they genuinely wanted to do medicine. Sure. But um, my teachers got involved, three in particular, who I'm still in touch with um, now to this day and see regularly. Um, and my mum was also very involved as well at the time. Oh, so she was help, helping with the convincing of of why you should be allowed yes. to, to do, to do law instead. Every, yeah. I mean, more than anything, it was me who convinced my dad, though. I have to say, it boiled down to me actually having to convince him. Um, and he was convinced, and he was very, very proud, really happy. You know, um, he was very happy when I when I qualified and, and really, really proud of what, what I went on to achieve. Yeah. Well, I can imagine you've, you've achieved so much, and I think sometimes obviously not speaking as a parent them, as myself, but I can imagine that with Nigerian parents, they have this idea of just wanting you to be successful. And I know they might have their idea, their idea of what success might be, but ultimately I'm sure they'll be happy with whatever you end up doing as long as you make sure you work hard and are, are happy in what you're doing as well. Exactly. No, he, he was really, really proud. 
really supportive. Great. And do you would you say you you said you were quite headstrong in um, convincing your your father about what you wanted to do, but just in terms of the mindset or what mindset allows you to kind of reach the level that you 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 are now, um, would mm. you say that you have a particular mindset that sort of sets you apart? I maintain focus against the odds. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, <laughs> the whole world could be telling me that I'm crazy to be try to be aiming for something. You know, I, I had, I wanted to become a corporate lawyer, which I did become, you know, I was a transactional lawyer for many, many years. Yeah. But I had a recruiter tell me at the time that I shouldn't bother because corporate law is too competitive for a black woman. I mean, he actually did say that and then started suggesting other areas of legal practice that would be more conducive, easier and so on. And, um, you know, seemingly it was against me. I didn't see any black uh, lawyers, female, who were doing, you know, we're going back almost 20 years now. Uh, there was no one I could see who'd done it, actually. So on, on one level, you know, it did seem to be the case that because it was too competitive, couldn't do it. But I thought, well, hang on a second, this is actually what I want to do. I'm passionate about it. I want to advise businesses. You know, that was the only area of law I was interested in. Um, so, you know, maintaining focus was something that became really clear from the very, very start and really understanding why it is you want to do something and playing to your strengths as well. You know, I knew that I was very, very capable. I knew that I was very, I had all the skill sets necessary to be a good transactional lawyer. I knew that. Um, at times it was a steep learning curve. And, you know, I did make a lot, you know, I had a lot of learning to do in the first few years. I, I really had to work hard uh, to to plug gaps and um, improve, uh, you know. But again, I did that against the odds when people sometimes advised that maybe I really wasn't cut out for corporate law. You know, there, there was too much, too, too many areas to develop and so on. But again, just to prove people wrong. Um, I thought, hang on, this is what I want to do and I will improve. And I think it's that constant commitment to staying focused and always, always improving, always being prepared to take on board feedback um, because you, you have your blind spots and you don't know often where you need to improve uh, is, is what really, I mean, I continue doing that even now. I'm always planning ahead, uh, one year ahead, five years and 10 years ahead. You know, the things that I'm working on now for, a year's time. Mm -hmm. uh, I know exactly where I want to be in a few months time or certainly, you know, by the new year, as it were. Um, and I started planning the, those things a year ago. <laughs> so it's, it's that focus is so important. Um, I say without the focus, it, it's impossible. And then there are other things like um, standing out from the crowd, you know, knowing what you stand for, being very unapologetic about who you are, what value you're bringing to the table, as it were. Um, commitment to learning, that learning mindset is the third thing, I would say. Um, supporting others, because, you know, it's just important to pass the baton on and, you know, um, support other people, mentoring, etc. cetera. Um, and then the final thing I would always say is that you know, when all else fails and there'll be times when you do all of this and it still goes belly up and you can't understand what you've done wrong. The reality is you've done nothing wrong. You know, life has happened and you just need to sort of keep calm and just maintain that faith and vision that somehow it will work itself out and it will do. Um, but I'd be lying if I said that there are times where I think, hang on a second, I've done absolutely everything right here and it's still not worked out the way I hoped. Yeah. 
and you just have to maintain that faith that somehow it will work out and it, it always does eventually sometimes it's a shorter period um sometimes it's a longer time but it does panic you know if you keep at it um statistically for no other reason you know something has to give if you stick at something yeah um, so that's exactly it has to and unfortunately people do give up um, too soon for all sorts of reasons um, yeah. but I, it's very hard to distract me I'd say it's impossible now to actually distract me from doing what I want to do it, once I've made my mind up yeah uh, that's it there's nothing anyone can say to persuade me otherwise I love that um, and how would you say there's or have you ever um, felt like you were going down a partic- uh, wrong path and had to kind of change course a bit um, because I, and I appreciate it, the importance of being focused and being quite head, quite firm in what you want to do and making sure that no one else can sort of deter you from that. But have you ever felt like perhaps this isn't the right route and you need to sometimes check, check you're going along the right route and you're still trying to achieve your goals? Definitely. So, I mean, I've learned that you should have a plan B because the downside to being so focused is if you're aiming for something so specific, um, there's no backup plan, as it were. Um, and I've recently had to uh, realign, you know, so I'm aiming very high, whichever way, even the plan B would be for most people, what their aspiration b- would be for their first plan, you know. So, but it's very important to have uh, some kind of safety net as well, where you're still aiming high, um, but you're you're just creating more chances for you to achieve your overall goal, goal of um of progressing. So at the moment I am working on a couple of options in terms of my next uh, next level move, if you like, uh, in terms of my career. Um, and either or both are likely, you know, one of them will come through in the next few months. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't actually, I wouldn't be too upset which of the two it would be because both would actually align with my vision of where I, I want to be, you know, in the next, next, you know, next year. Yeah. And are you able to to speak about future career aspirations publicly or? (laughs) (laughs) All I can say is it would be a more senior leadership role um, that would give uh, even more opportunity to to drive change. Um, It would always be aligned uh, with the legal profession, either practicing or within the profession itself. Um, but that's really all I can say. <laughs> no, no, I know. That, I felt like I should ask the question <laughs> just in case. Um, but we, we look forward to following your journey anyway, I'm sure. Um, I can't wait to see what you do. Um, what what advice would you give to other women who are interested in reaching a similar bis- position as you, um, but are sort of at the start of their careers? I would say, I mean, I, I always say it's summarised by a quote from Tom Hiddleston, who's one of my favourite actors, um, and that it's all about like climbing mountains that, you know, he, he said that you never know what's around the corner. It could be everything or it could be nothing. Um, but just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And one day you look back and you've climbed a mountain. Mm. And it's so important to remember that the focus actually is to keep moving forward. Even if you're limping forward, if someone's having to drag you forward, uh, sometimes you'll be sprinting forward uh, in your journey. But as long as you keep moving forward, that's the key thing. And I can honestly say, looking back, that that's what I managed to do. There were times when I did limp forward and I didn't really feel at all great about my situation, but I carried on moving forward. 
And that's what I would say is that you need to just keep moving forward, whatever it's going to take to do that, supports, development, you know, maintaining your vision, really knowing who you are and what you stand for. The key is to keep moving forward, uh, whatever the setbacks are. And I've had many, many setbacks uh, throughout my career, but I have carried on moving forward despite those setbacks. Um, and that's important, but it's, it is like climbing mountains. Um, and I look back now and think, my goodness, you know, that's how I've gotten to where I am. Yeah, It really is moving forward one step at a time. Okay, I've done that. What's the next stage, right? This is the next stage. Uh, and then you do look back and see that you've climbed a mountain. Great. And do you have any resources? This is the final question. Um, do you have any resources or you, you, you gave such an amazing quote, but any other resources that people could um, or that have helped you in your career journey um, that other people could also uh, use themselves, be it a book or um, a podcast that you may listen yes. to? Yes, I've read a lot of books over the years. One of the best ones I read most recently is Option B by um, Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. It's all about resilience. And uh, she wrote the book um, two years after her, her husband died suddenly. Sheryl Sandberg is the COO of Facebook. Sure. So she's a very, very visible uh, female leader in tech. And her husband died suddenly. I mean, he literally was in the gym one day and collapsed and died unexpectedly um, two years ago and she suddenly had to find a way of moving forward with her two children so she wrote this book she also wrote a book called lean in which is the one that a lot many more people have heard about and that's about how women you know should lean into their careers more and, and to progress sure. but what i liked about option b which is a fairly recent release is it's all about resilience it's full of stories of people who've overcome significant odds to move on in their lives, not just in the business world, but generally. And I found that invaluable um, this year. I, I had a sudden tragic um, loss of a family member um, in the middle of the year in a, with a, in a car accident. My, my cousin uh, suddenly died. You know, he died in a car crash. Mm, very sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and it was, it still is a devastating loss, but I had to find something that, you know, I was really, really knocked back by that. Um, it was just so shocking and awful. I mean, leaving a wife and two young children behind and my aunt and uncle are beside themselves, you know, his siblings, uh, et cetera. We're all, we're all very, very upset and I still are, but I found that reading this book uh, helped me to understand, um, break things down a bit more and actually, uh, there's some really useful tools in the book that I, I apply to other situations as well where you're having to be resilient. Uh, and re resilience is the key, actually, to progressing through life, you know, to, to bounce back from setbacks and so on. Resilience is a muscle that you can develop, and that's what this book talks about. So I would highly recommend Option B. It's a really, really good book. Thank you. Thank you for that recommendation. It sounds like a, a really good book to check out just to develop that, as you said, develop that resilience muscle. Mm, um, so thank you for sharing. Um, thank you so much, Funke, for the uh, for taking part in the podcast and for all your tips and uh, stories that you've shared. Um, I just wanted to find out what's the best way for for others to kind of follow your journey um, and just see, kind of keep in touch with the things that you get up to. The, the best way by far is on Twitter. Um, yeah. My Twitter handle is at uh, diversitychamp1. Okay. And um, I tweet regularly about where, you know, from events I'm speaking at or where I'm watching others speak. 
um, regularly. I mean, daily, you know, several tweets a day. So that's the best way. Uh, I can't obviously engage personally with absolutely everyone who wants to engage with me. It's, you know, it's absolutely impossible to do that. But Twitter is a good way. I also have a website, um, which I update regularly. And that's funkabimbola.com. It's, it's just my name. And I recently relaunched that website as well. And I update it regularly. And that's got a lot of information on there about my journey and, you know, the medical scholarship I have, you know, in, in memory of my father and all the voluntary work I do, etc. So there's some good ways to, to keep in touch with what I'm up to. Perfect. Uh, thank you again. That's been extremely helpful. And um, I'll be sure to share all those as well, just to make sure it's easy for people to find as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Shadi. Thank you guys for listening. And I'll catch you next time on She Did It Anyway.